welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. I guess you've been watching the news. It's hard to avoid the news. One of those nations where there's a civil uprising in the Middle East is Syria. And uh, during the week, we saw some bulletins about what's going on in Syria. Syria gets a mention in the Bible. And uh, way back in the Old Testament, there's a story about the commander of the Syrian army, a man of authority, a man who commanded respect, a man who had huge human resources at his disposal. This commander, the story tells us, contracted leprosy. And that was disastrous for him. But in his household, fortunately, there was a young slave girl who said to her master's wife, if the master was in my country, there's a prophet there who could heal him. Through God's power. And so the wife tells the husband, whose name is Naaman. And Naaman tells his mate, the king, if only I was in Israel, I might have a potential of being healed of this dreadful disease. So the king writes a letter, and he writes a letter to the king of Israel, said, this is my army commander, treat him with great respect, and so on. Long story short, Naaman and his entourage of horses, servants, chariots, rolls up at the prophet's home. The prophet's name is Elisha. Now, being a man of great authority, Naaman is expecting the royal treatment. Get used to disappointment. Because what Elisha does, he doesn't even bother to come out and welcome Naaman to his home. Which was quite a contradiction of Middle Eastern hospitality. What he does is he sends his servant out. And his servant says to Naaman, want to be healed? Wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman gets offended. And there's a whole other sermon in in just that point as there is in the slave girl telling what she knows to be true Naaman drives away in a rage he's offended no one has recognized his position or his status fortunately for him he has a servant with him who's quite a trusted servant. We don't know this guy's name, but he's got a good relationship with Naaman because we know he addresses him as father. And he says to Naaman, as they're tearing away in their chariot, Father, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. Why not this simple task? Now, to his credit, 
Naaman listens to this piece of wisdom, swallows his pride, and does exactly what Elisha's servant has instructed him to do. He washes in the Jordan River once, twice, three times, six times, seven times, comes out of the water. The Bible says leprosy is gone. The term that the Bible uses is his skin is like a young boy's. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that beauty treatment. I want to get rid of my turkey neck, my wrinkles, my crow's feet, my marks. It's probably not going to happen. I tell that story because I think it's a helpful illustration to us this morning. It's an illustration of the upside down nature of God's family. Because in this story, the power brokers, the king, Naaman, huge resources at their disposal, positions of power and authority, finances, the power brokers are powerless. The humble people, the little people in this story, the servant girl who would have been very young, and the other trusted servant, no positions of authority, they were like belongings, they were like chattels. They were possessions. And yet, they were the ones that changed Naaman's destiny forever. Because in this story, the point is they're sharing what they know to be true. Naaman eventually responds to that, is healed, and becomes a God worshipper. His destiny is changed forever. We are continuing the series of Upside Down today. If you haven't listened uh, to Tony's introductory talk, I would suggest that you download the MP3 and have a listen. Today's title is Least is Greatest. The culture we're born into, you'll remember Tony was pointing out a couple of weeks ago, defines lots of things about us. It defines what we prefer to eat. It defines our idea of what family and community is. It defines some of our social values. We're shaped and influenced by those things more than we really know. When people submit their lives to Jesus, they're born again or converted into a different culture, a new culture, the kingdom of God culture. Christians understand the need for everyone to be forgiven by God and to be born again or made new from the inside out. So with conversion, there is also inversion. The upside down turning of cultural values. And that's what this series is about. It's about inversion of values. The values of God's family are often seen to be upside down. We've looked at first is last. These are paradoxes. These are seemingly contradictory statements. We've looked at serve to rule. We've looked at foolishness is wisdom and slavery is freedom. But our conviction during this whole series is that God's values are right side up. 
it's society's values that are upside down. Just taking one aspect of society, selfishness, looking at selfishness, we can see what a mess society is in. Selfishness leads to all sorts of trouble. Road rage, murder, rape, violence, greed, theft, all based on self-centred actions, just concerned to get what one wants out of a situation no matter what the cost. All products of a self-centred mindset. I want to look briefly at some other aspects of greatness how it manifests itself, what society's concept of greatness is. In our culture, it's linked to wealth, it's linked to social standing, it's linked to power and position, it's linked to control, it's linked to possessions and toys, it's linked to leisure time where we get to do all sorts of self-indulgent pursuits. Here are some of the words that society might use to describe greatness. But you know, generally, the people at the top of the ladder, the people of social status, aren't necessarily the people who are the most happy or most fulfilled people on the planet. Despite the hallmarks of success, many of them are still anxious. Their families are far from model families. Their kids may not be the best adjusted kids in the world. Few of them are actually making the world a better place. By contrast, some of the happiest people that we have met, Glenda and I have met, would be some unemployed Kalahari Bushmen in Namibia, near the border of Botswana, still cooking over open fires. They smell of sweat and smoke, and yet happy, few possessions, yet happy. Or a missionary couple in Metro Manila who'd moved there with their three young children and set up home in a humpy with an organisation called Servants in Asia living with the poor and the destitute and the needy in a riverbed and yet happy because they felt that they were actually responding to God's call and serving and fulfilled. Very few possessions, very few trappings of what society would say are success. In contrast to society's understanding of greatness, God has a different perspective. People think, um, because I'm reasonably quiet, out, not at home, but out, people think, because I'm reasonably quiet, I must be really humble. Uh, That's not the case, I've got to confess today. I struggle with some of the... uh, Perhaps because I've been on the journey a long while, I'm dealing with some of the more subtle aspects of pride. But I still have to make a choice every day. A decision to let those things that rise up within me, that want me to assert myself and be number one, let those things drift away. Have a talk amongst yourself while I have a drink. Every week, that's enough talking. Every week, when I come in this auditorium, I tend to put my man bag down on a chair. You know? Because I want to sit on the aisle. I like that seat. I've grown accustomed to it. But what does it matter where I sit? 
It, it doesn't matter a hoot. Jesus got an invitation that he noticed um, when he went to this religious leader's house. It was a dinner invitation, so he was there to eat. He noticed that the guests who came were elbowing each other, jostling for the prime positions, fighting for the good seats. And he took note of that and he made some comments to the people who were there. And he said something like this, be careful about choosing the best seats because if you choose a good seat and someone more important rolls up, the host will come to you and say, sorry buddy, um, that seat's reserved for somebody else. And you will not only be embarrassed, but you'll be humiliated in front of all the other guests of being asked to sit at a less significant seat. Better by far to actually sit in a lowly seat and to have the host come to you in front of all the guests and say, come up and sit next to me. The key verse for this least is greatest is found in Luke 14 and verse 11. And Jesus says to them in the context of this dinner, this dinner party that the religious leader, the Pharisee, has thrown and invited Jesus to. He says, for those who make themselves great will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be made great. Least is greatest. So be careful about choosing seats based on your inflated opinion of yourself. It's the host who gets to decide where people sit. Here's a little picture of God's kingdom, God's family. Greatness in God's family is not about self-assertiveness. It's not about the opinion we have of ourselves. It's the opinion God has of us. Christians are to defer to other people. We don't often do that or we don't often do it well. But we are supposed to happily yield the good seats for other people. In fact, we should be so busy serving, so busy waiting on tables that we don't even have time to sit down. Our vocation, our calling is to service. Just like our master, our calling is to service, not to seat choosing. Jesus addressed the host at one point in this dinner party. He says to him, next time you do a dinner, invite people who can't repay the favour. Invite the poor, invite the cripple, invite the lame, invite the blind. Don't invite your religious mates who will repay you in kind and repay you with a favour. Invite people who can't, who will never repay you. Choose humility rather than recognition. This little instruction to the host is kind of a little 
insight into our position in God's family. We can't get into God's heavenly dinner party on our own merits because in contrast to Jesus, standing next to Jesus, we're blind, we're crippled, we're poor, we're needy. The invitation to be in God's dinner party is issued to everyone. It's a free gift, it's undeserved, and there's no way we can manipulate our way in there other than by humbling ourselves and accepting Jesus' recklessly generous invitation. In God's family, recognition eludes those who pursue it. While those who value others more than themselves are never overlooked by God. God notices. Albert Schweitzer was a theologian and an African missionary. He died in probably 1965, perhaps aged about 90, I reckon. And he said this, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. Being humble is point three, does not come naturally. Being humble is not our natural state of existence. Do you agree? We're not humble naturally. Humility requires us to make a huge mind shift. No social prestige, no financial gain, just a willingness to be obedient to God no matter what. Cameron Ottens, some of you would know Cameron, he's three. His natural bent is not, I have to say, towards sharing his toys with other boys and girls. Parental problem? He has to learn the process. It's no different for, for us. We have to learn humility. And our tendency will always be for self-promotion. We will have to choose daily to defer to others, to value others, to honour others above ourselves. There was a day, I remember it still in my memory, it's one of those pivotal moments in my history. I had handed in my warrant card, my cap badges, equipment that I'd been issued, and I'd resigned from the South Australian Police Force. And I was riding my bike home from Theberton Barracks, and this feeling of absolute powerlessness came over me. I could no longer arrest anybody. <laughs> Done. I felt absolutely powerless but I never doubted that I was doing the right thing some years later Glenda and I stood on a stage in a hall in Melbourne with 30 other colleagues and we were ordained for ministry we stood there nervously excitedly a mixture of both those emotions and it was kind of like the culmination of us determining that our life would be set on a course of humble, obedient service to God 
for the rest of our life. It was a pivotal moment in our careers and in the, in the direction that our life was to take. We're still trying to do that, but it still takes a daily commitment of resolving to be humble. I've got to tell you, this humility movement is never going to simply catch on. It's not going to develop momentum of its own. You're not going to get swept up in the emotion of humility movement. There's no immediate benefit. There's no reward for the humble person. And that's the whole point. That it will be a choice every day of your life. Jesus wasn't enriched in any way by becoming human. He'd pre-existed. He was way superior to us in every way. When he took on human form, he actually took on limitations, willingly humbling himself to become a man and live amongst us. It was a giant leap of humility. So Jesus called them all together, the disciples, and he said, You know that the rulers of the heathen have power over them, and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it shall be among you. If one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. That's humility. Here's point four. There's no doubt that the humble pay a price. This theme of humility is with, right through the Bible. Yet, it's costly. Jesus was humble. Jesus' servanthood, his humility, took him to the cross. We sang about that this morning. Serving sounds so nice, doesn't it? It sounds so noble. But it's costly. It will interrupt your life. It will change the direction of your life. Jesus was willing to serve the needs of the sick on the Sabbath, even at the cost of his own life, or at least the risk of his own life. He announced forgiveness to undeserving people, knowing that he would be accused of being a blasphemer because only God could forgive sins. Yet he was prepared to pay the price. His humility brought him neither financial gain nor social prestige. Quite the opposite, cost him his life. Serving will cost us. I'm afraid many of us will refuse to pay the price. But that's the challenge for us. A couple of weeks ago, I had my annual performance appraisal. Do you do appraisals on staff, Tony? No, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know how many of you do performance appraisals, but it's an annual process at my workplace whereby the boss sits down with you and you both have a written document that you've prepared and you go through that. And he'd written some things that were critical of my behaviour. What a bad boss. 
Do you know, it's really interesting. We judge other people by, by their behaviour, but we judge ourselves by our intention. Not by our behaviour, but what we intended. We didn't mean that. We, you know. Everything in me screamed, defend yourself, like justify your position. He's not a Christian. He holds values different to mine. And so I wanted to argue the point. I wanted to say, how dare you? I'm a good person. I'm nice. I'm humble. And proud of it. But at that moment, in my boss's office, I felt God saying to me, well, sensing that God was wanting me to simply absorb the criticism and just let it stop there. And I did that, but it wasn't very comfortable and it wasn't a natural response. Everything in me cried out, justify yourself. Humility is a key value in God's family. Your attempts to be humble, to express your humility, will be misunderstood. Get used to it. You'll be walked on by other people. You'll be overlooked in promotions at work, maybe. You'll miss out on the best seats. But the favour of God will be on you. Humility is a key value in God's family. Whether God asks us to park cars clean toilets, show people to their seats, or preach, we ought all to be equally as fulfilled because we're serving the king. So whether you're in the car park or whether you're up here preaching, let's do it with humility and do it as unto the king. True greatness is not determined by how high we climb the social ladder, but by our willingness to serve. Service doesn't just get us into God's good books. It's not a manipulative tool that we can use. Though God is pleased when we serve. But service gives us credibility and integrity. Service adds depth to our lives. Service gives us authenticity. Service earns us the right to speak into other people's lives and to influence them because of our genuine concern for them. The humble will pay a price. Here's my final point. The proud will pay a far greater price. James 4 and verse 6, one of the letters of the New Testament, says God opposes or resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He not just ignores the proud, he actively works against them. He opposes them. Now, how you see yourself, whether you see yourself as a humble person or a proud person, will determine how you feel about this verse. Isn't that right? If you're a proud person, you'll be fearful. If you think you're a humble person, You'll be proud of that fact. You'll love this verse. I get grace. 
Be careful how you evaluate yourself in the light of this verse. Arrogance is not the best way to endear yourself towards God. God sees that as idolatry. He sees that as you setting yourself up in his rightful place. Of you being in control rather than him being in control. I want to pull a few threads together as I conclude. So it might be a good time for the worship team to make their way up quietly. Been talking about least is greatest. It's seen in Jesus' life. Born in a stable. First years of life as a refugee in Egypt. He never owned a house or a shiny new donkey. He never went overseas unless you count the Sea of Galilee. He was reliant all through his life on other people's generosity and their hospitality. Yet he was the greatest man who ever lived. We see pictures of this least is greatest in little ways. I have my bag, thanks, Sky. That would be great. I bought a friend this morning. I tried to get a real one, but mothers are so protective. Oh, I've got your attention. I'd like, I've got to say I'm a bit worried about this. There's, I haven't seen this friend for probably 20 years. Um, but he's here today. We won't show Elise just yet, all right? This is Russell. Do you recognize Russell? That's exactly the question I asked when I discovered him in a trunk. Russell, why are you wearing a dress? Who was it who was playing with you last who would dress you in a dress? Is there some gender reassignment going on here or what? We see least as greatest in our families. Mum comes home from hospital with a new baby and up to now husband and wife have been the centre of their own lives they have been able to choose where they will go to eat what time they will eat what they will watch on TV where they will go who they will visit all that sort of stuff baby comes home from hospital everything changes everything changes this little bundle eats and sleeps and in between cries and poos. But everything now revolves around this little one. This is the least of the family. This is the most helpless individual. And yet this is the greatest member of the family. Mum and dad would lay down their lives for this little one. Least is greatest another way of thinking about least is greatest Jesus said whenever we give food whenever we give drink whenever we give clothing whenever we care for the sick 
whenever we visit those in, pri in prison, whenever we do that, we're doing it to him as well. Here's another way of understanding least is greatest. We might give to the needy the least that our society says are the least and yet we're giving to the greatest as well. When we serve the least, we also serve the greatest. In God's family, service and compassion replace the values of dominance and control. In God's family, we enjoy being challenged to be humble. We enjoy serving others because we know the favor of God is on us. I didn't get a mention in the Queen's birthday honors list. Did you? Anybody? Disappointment. What will be the hallmark of your life as a Christian? Will you get a mention in God's honours list for your service, for your humility? The key idea of this whole talk has been in God's family, true greatness is found not in our status and power, but in our humility towards God and people. If you're not a Christian today, the takeaway bit for you might be this thought, that to come fully alive, to be fully human, will always require you to humble yourself before God and ask him to rescue you. He will never allow you to rescue yourself. It will always require humility. If you've not yet handed over your life to Jesus, know that he has already been recklessly generous to you by dying in your place and taking the penalty of your sin on himself so that you might be free, so that you could become a child of God. For those of us who are Christians, the paradoxical value, the upside-down value of putting others' needs ahead of our own requires a deliberate and continuous cooperation between us and God. So that our life reflects the authenticity of his family. I want to close with a quote. Bill Hybels is senior pastor of a very large church in the United States of America. And he says this, I would never want to reach out someday with a soft, uncalloused hand, a hand never dirtied by serving, in order to shake the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. Least is greatest. The only pathway to true greatness is through humility and service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of your willingness to come, not to be served, but to serve.
and to give your life as a ransom, as a payment for us. We look at your life and we're challenged. We know that we can never be quite like that. And yet we're also encouraged because you invite us to walk the journey in company with you. With your Holy Spirit living within us, enabling us to make the tough choices of choosing service rather than choosing the best seats. Of choosing humility rather than status. We need your help, Lord. We humble ourselves in your presence today, asking for your help that as we go through life, that our lives might ring with authenticity and with clarity, that we truly might represent the values of the family, that we truly might be able to represent the inversion value of least is greatest. Help us, those of us who are followers of yours, to diminish while you grow inside us. Allow our lives to magnify your life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to participate in communion in in just a few minutes. And so I'd invite our attendants to distribute those elements of communion. And our worship team will lead us as we sing together. Thank you. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.